with an amen to that refrain. Let's take our copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans and a passage that will help us reflect on His mercy. Romans chapter 11. Echo a welcome to you. Join with the men that have already welcomed you. If you're visiting with us, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you'll find one in front of you. Just look in the rack there. Please grab that, turn to Romans 11, follow along with us. That is where we're at. As mentioned as we opened this section last week, we're now making our final descent in this 11th chapter. In fact, in chapter 11 is one thing, but the final descent in chapters 9, 10, and 11, this entire section. Let us survey again the whole panorama of this passage as we begin our study this morning and we consider again the plan of God, life from the dead. Look with me at verse 11. Let's read it as we begin. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy... So is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel." until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, that they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, God, we approach this text. We pray with fear and trembling that you would help us, Lord, to see it, to understand it, to receive it, to sink it deep, Lord, to apply it and and go forth changed by it. Father, that is our prayer each Lord's Day. No different today, Lord. We beg and pray that you would do that work which only you can do in us by way of your living word. In Christ's name, amen. You look at those verses, scanning them again from the altitude that we're at. This is the plan of God for humanity, life from the dead, from remnant to fullness, from a remnant within one chosen nation to the fullness of nations, mercy on all. The redemption of humanity, that would be plan execution, begins with this. Remember Genesis 12. 
1 and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the redemption of humanity, beginning with that, culminates with this. We read it last week. Hear it again. Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those, the glorious bookends, Genesis and Revelation, of the plan of God, life from the dead. And we opened our look at this plan last week as Paul guided us. Look now again at verses 11 to 15 with our first point, the plan. The plan. And recall, Westmount, when we think of the plan, we noted two things. One, the end of the plan. Look at verse 11. The end of the plan is not Gentile salvation. Verse 11, look at it. It says, salvation has indeed come to the Gentiles, but keep reading, so as to make Israel jealous. Secondly, the plan includes Gentile salvation, but there it is, for the purpose of Israel's jealousy. So remember, Israel's stumble, their trespass, which is their rejection of the Messiah, led to riches for the world. That would be, as we mentioned, covenant blessings experienced beyond the covenant people, Israel. As mentioned last week, Israel's rejection, albeit temporarily, has led to the good news of reconciliation through Jesus Christ being spread among the Gentiles, among the world. So if Israel's rejection meant that individuals from other nations would hear the good news and come to Christ and be reconciled to him for salvation, then Israel's acceptance, verse 15, can only mean something more. And as we looked at, it means life from the dead. Life from the dead, that is the terminus. That's the purpose, the grand purpose, recall, of God's salvation plan. The plan of God, the plan of God for a dead humanity in Adam, chapter 5 of this letter. Mankind dead, spiritually impotent, unable to respond to Creator rightly. Thus, the ultimate purpose of creation. Remember, God's plan is for creation to respond rightly, to worship Creator. But right now, that's futile. It's futile for most of creation. But God had a plan before creation, Ephesians 1, to redeem that creation, Colossians 1. God's plan is to bring life from the dead for this creation, to renew it. Westmount, God's plan, remember this, is for the cosmos to be set back right. For creation to return to the life that it was designed to live. We learned that last week. Verses 11 to 15. Remember, the final act will not just be Gentile saved, glorious, or Israel saved, wonderful. But the final act is the cosmos returning to normal and creator's design, returning to that creator's design. And it's this, if we could sum it up, all of creation rightly orbiting around the sun, the king, the center of the universe. The Old Testament kingdom conditions fulfilled life from the dead conditions on earth, not just individual Gentiles, a smattering of them bringing tribute and worship to God, but nations corporately, as we read, after the fullness of Israel, bringing tribute to the Christ. This is humanity's life from the dead, and it is the plan, the grand plan of God. 
And that was 11 to 15. And from there, we ended last week opening up our second point, which was this, the pictures. We moved from the plan to the pictures. And we had only time to look at verse 16 before we ended, but let's return there now. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Two pictures given there. You see them, the first from the Mosaic Law. We looked at this last week. Numbers 15, the holy, the consecrated first part of the dough for the rest. The idea is just that, that the first part is affected, right? It's made holy, is set apart, so as to consecrate the rest, the whole. That's the key. Then the second picture was one that the first century Christian would be very familiar with, not to mention the Jew. And it is the picture of the tree. Used in so many places and in so many ways in the Old Testament. We sung one of them this morning with Psalm 1. I think also you find it in Isaiah 5, Isaiah 11. Here in Romans 11, the picture of the tree, like the dough, is this. And this is really the key. A picture of a part and a whole, or a part to a whole. So as the first lump makes the whole lump holy, so too the holy root makes what? The branch is holy, right? That's the idea simply that these pictures are intended to convey. There is consecration and connectivity between the part, in many senses the first or the central part, and the whole. That's the key. So as we return now and pick it up in verse 17, we begin, and I trust you have this outstanding question, lingering question, what are these pictures representing with respect to Israel? What are they representing? That's the focus. Israel is in view in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Well, before we endeavor to answer that and keep reading, we need to pause. Remember, we have to continue to just uh, ensure we have all that we've been learning with us as we continue on this journey of study. Keep taking it with us. We need to bear in mind some important truths that we've mined and studied and learned in chapters 9, 10, and 11 thus far. So number one is this. Remember, Paul is teaching about Israel in this passage in both a corporate national sense and in an individual sense. Let's review the thesis of this section. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. We just read this one verse, but remember, this will set us right. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Why? Look, for not all who are descended from Israel, corporately, belong to Israel. In a true sense. There it is the corporate and the individual. Not all Israel, ethnically, corporately, nationally, belong to Israel truly or faithfully. So under the Old Testament banner of Israel, there would be a whole group ethnically by DNA. You see this all throughout the scriptures, many just hanging on to that badge of skin. And yet within that nation was a remnant, true Israel, And they're true Israel, why? Because of faith in Messiah. And faith, beloved, is decisive here, isn't it? Faith is decisive. It separates those in Israel. Faith always separates, but it separates those specifically in Israel. Not DNA, right? Faith is the scalpel. So two groups are what are in view in chapters 9, 10, and 11. One true, one false. One alive, one dead. That's the important truth we've been studying. That's one. Two, we learned also that outside Israel, among the Gentiles, it turns out, was also a remnant. And as we learned, not only were they also a remnant, but a remnant by faith. Look at the end of chapter 9. Verse 30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, and we could also say don't have the DNA, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Note the instrument, by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it, again, same instrument, by faith. As if it were based on works. That's how they pursued it. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. If faith defined one as truly God's own, and faith is not a matter of ethnicity or DNA, then, as Paul says here, and the Old Testament testifies, there are those with faith beyond Israel. This makes sense, doesn't it? If faith is decisive. Think of Rahab, 
Think of Ruth. Think of the letter, Jonah's letter. Not just the Ninevites, but the mariners on the ship, all sharing a trait in common. And while such faithful ones, as you think of your Old Testament, are not ethnically Jews, they do share something in common with the remnant in true Israel, don't they? And what is that? Faith. That's it, simply. It's faith in God. That's what they share. So two groups, faithful Gentiles and faithful Israelites, both remnants in a sense, but united by faith. We studied this flowing from Abraham and his faith in chapter 4 of this same letter. That's key as we remind ourselves of these foundational truths. But one more before we descend even further here. Remember the steps of the plan. There's steps of a plan. Romans 11. Good verse 11. It says this again, recap. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their jealous means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, and we study this, how much more will their full inclusion mean? He unpacks this further. Listen, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And here it is again. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Look at it. Israel's stumble leads to Gentile inclusion, which should lead to Israel's jealousy, which leads to Israel's full inclusion, each step leading toward And then here's the terminus again, verse 15, life from the dead. That's the plan. But remember, it's a plan to redeem humanity by way of a remnant. There's an unfolding plan through a people as it starts to unfold and expand. God giving life to a small remnant group for the future purpose of giving life to the whole, making it accessible to the whole. Now, with that vehicle of redemption and those truths in mind, now we can dive in. And we return to the picture of a tree. Look at verse 17. It says this, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, we stop there, And we consider for a moment this picture of the olive tree. You see it? The olive tree. This is a picture, a very familiar picture from the Old Testament. Consider Jeremiah 11 says this. Olive tree, using words like this in verse 16. An olive tree, this picture of a calling. A called olive tree. And then in verse 17 of Jeremiah 11 says, An olive tree that was planted by the Lord. Key language there. An olive tree planted by the Lord. Such an olive tree of life and from the Lord is like the one Gabe read for us this morning in Hosea 14. You recall that? The olive tree, not just Israel, but here is the picture that he read, a faithful Israel, a renewed Israel, a tree, as Hosea 14, 6-7 says, is beautiful, flourishes, and produces blossoms. In fact, that picture I want to submit to you this morning is nothing short of a tree of life. It's a tree of life. So let's put that Old Testament picture of this olive tree together with what we've learned because that is exactly what Paul is doing here in his application picture. So let's track with him. The olive tree is one planted by God, made up of the called by God, right? The olive tree is a tree that's associated with life, not death. The olive tree, thus, is not a picture of corporate or national Israel. It can't be. Why? Because within national Israel are what? Dead branches, right? Dead branches from Saul to the Pharisee. Paul says, look at verse 17, such branches, in fact, are broken off. They're not part of the tree. And every gardener will tell you that's what you do with dead branches. You cut them off, and they're usually not part of the tree. More, Paul says in verse 17, and you, note what he does here, Gentile, and 
the original. He turns now and makes a singular. You, singular. You, Gentile. He gets very personal here. He says, Gentile, you were a wild olive shoot. Even more specific than a branch. You were not cultivated. You were not of the tree. You, Gentile, were grafted in among the other branches, and now you share of the root. What a picture. And which wild Gentile is Paul referring to? Well, we we know which ones he's not referring to. Remember Romans 1 and 2? He's not referring to the wild truth suppressors. He's not referring to the moralistic ones, right? And with the law in their heart, the cosmic law, no. You, wild olive shoots of faith, right, are what? Gentiles with faith. With faith. So you, wild olive shoots of faith, are grafted into the cultivated olive tree. Hence the connectivity in this tree. And follow with me. Thus, the picture of an olive tree that Paul is giving here in Romans 11 is simply this. It is a picture of the faithful of God. A picture of the faithful of God. Listen, let's look at this tree. From the faithful root in Israel, the root, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the faithful branches, you could say David and others, which are the remnant of faithful Israel, to the faithful grafted in shoots, who are the faithful Gentiles. That's the picture. The olive tree of God's planted, called And the saints who believe. This is a tree that has fruit of people that are alive and believe in Messiah. Thus, it's a tree of faith. That's the continuity between the root and the branches. Do you see it? The root, the patriarchs, were the first fruits consecrated as a people through which the plan would be fulfilled of liberating the universe, quite frankly. Through these people, and one to come. The root, the patriarchs, were the first fruits consecrated as holy, set apart. The branches are the faithful that would follow. Think of Romans 4. Faithful branches in Israel, predominantly up to the time of Christ, and then upon the advent of Christ, branches were ingrafted from the wild, but alive, ones of faith, Gentiles. All while, see what Paul is saying, The dead branches, so the native, unbelieving Israelites, were lopped off, tree pruned. This is exactly what Paul describes in Galatians. Consider Galatians 3. Just listen to this. We went through this letter a few years ago. Galatians 3. I'll just read you a few verses here, starting in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith. Who are the sons of Abraham? That's the connectivity to Abraham. Remember that in Galatians and Romans 4? There certainly is a DNA, but here Paul wants to bring out over and over again, Galatians and Romans, it's faith that's the connective tissue. Verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Do you see that? Abraham, you're a fountainhead of humanity, not because of your DNA, but because of your faith. Your faith. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So good. And later, verse 14, sums it up with this, Galatians 3. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Consider how mind-blowing that is to the first century Jew. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, that's all by faith. Tree currency is faith. Through faith, that's the binding sap of God's people in the tree. You consider Romans 11. With that picture clear now, let's continue in verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. And now he's turning still to these Gentiles, connected by faith. Do not... Be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Paul warns, look at that verse, the grafted in Gentile, do not be arrogant. That's his warning to them. Don't be arrogant. Remember your place. The root is in Israel. It's not in your nation or the nations. It's in Israel. And the root supports you, not vice versa. This makes sense for anyone reading the Old Testament, let alone this letter. 
Jew first, then the Greek. Some Gentiles, it's true, carry on, as they did in the first century and up to today, as if they are the root. Gentiles carrying on as if they are the new root. Gentiles carrying on as if they support the tree now. Again, again, quick to dispense with Israel, neglecting, even reinterpreting Old Testament prophecies, planting a new tree. Yet Paul reminds us here, now look at the text, because it's just the text, the tree never changes. The tree's never changed. Sure, it has Gentile branches grafted in, not roots, grafted in. Branches the Jews never would have conceived of, but listen, beloved, the root remains the same. That's the point. Like God, who never changes. Now, Paul anticipates here the Gentile retort to that rebuke. Look at verse 19, and we might anticipate it too. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You can just hear Gentiles today saying this. Well, where is Israel today? Where are they? Right? They were broken off and we're here. Paul says this in verse 20. That is true, but you can almost put a but here. They were broken off because of their unbelief. That's the one truth. But then two, the warning, you stand fast through faith. So you do not become proud, but fear so much here. The, the Gentile retort Paul has in mind here, look at it again, says, well, branches were broken off. And now, in their place, we, I, was grafted in. What do you say to that, Paul? In other words, the rhetorist goes something like this. They're gone. They had their chance. I don't see Israelites embracing Messiah now. Right? That's what it goes like. And you hear it today. You see it individually and corporately. Now, bear in mind, beloved, before we get swept away with such sentiment, there is a huge difference between branches being cut off and a tree being cut down, isn't there? Huge difference, isn't there? In exhibit A, the tree remains the same, right? Exhibit B would be no tree. Yet Paul doesn't say that the tree was cut down. Instead, he meets that arrogant thought with this. Verse 20, I love this. He says, that is true. Indicatively, yes, branches were cut off. That is true. But then what does he do? They were broken off. That's what we're missing. See why they were broken off. Because of what? Unbelief. Not DNA, not anything. Unbelief. Because of unbelief. It's always faith. It's always faith. This should make clear sense for us, I pray. If the connecting sap of the tree, if what binds one on the tree is faith, then branches of unbelief are what? Dead. Right? They're dead. And that's why they're broken off, not because of tradition, not because of lineage, not because of heritage. They're broken off because they lack faith. Dead branches are broken off because they have dead faith. That's it. And before prideful temptation takes root, Paul has a reminder and a warning. Let's keep to the text. One, he says, you, still singular, you stand fast through faith. In other words, Keep the faith, Gentile, that you have. Implied here, is it faith, Gentile? True faith is never proud. True faith is never proud. True faith never boasts of placing God's tree. Because true faith knows that true faith is a gift. A gift given to a once dead soul. What is true at salvation carries through in sanctification and perspective of one's stead and future. True faith, listen, beloved, never boasts because true faith knows this, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. True faith knows. Left to myself, this is where I was. You want to talk about obedience? Ephesians 2 says you were a son and daughter of disobedience. That's who you were. There's nothing to boast in there. Verse 4, but God 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, thinking of the plan of God here, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, true faith knows this. You know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, don't you? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. Perish the thought that we boast. So number one, you stand fast through faith. And by standing fast, you get low. And you remember your great salvation has nothing to do with you or your work. Two, another great instrument here. Do not become proud, but fear. Always the great antidote to pride, right? Is fear in a healthy way, we would say. In other words, remember what gives life. Christian, how quickly we can lose the fear of God if we're not careful. How quickly it can go, right? God knows that. And by his mercy, he gives us a divine mechanism, look at it, to humble us. And I want us to see here, it's fear. You see that? This is a command to fear. Of course, this would be a whole other message, if not series. We have fear all messed up, don't we? We fear everything else but what we should. Is that not true? We find everything to fear. From health to other people. First year, this is a fear that is good and right. And you say, is there such a fear? There is a fear that is needed. Let's read about it. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then, look at this, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Wow. There it is, beloved, it's the kindness and severity of God, the comfort and the terror, the love and the holiness. This is who God is, and you fear him as such. You fear him as such. Listen, this is what theologians have said for years, holy fear. Holy fear that knows the severity of God, that sin must be punished, it's never tolerated, And yet the kindness of God. What did we sing this morning? How great is your sin, Christian? And how much greater is his mercy? So good. This is holy fear that knows, holds both in compatibility. It knows both the kindness and severity of our God. And we need this, beloved. Chances are you're calibrated wrongly on one side. You know too much about the kindness of God, if there's such a thing. In other words, I'd say it this way. You don't know enough about the severity of God or you don't know enough about the kindness. Not calibrated rightly. One side we'd say this. God has no tolerance for evil and persistent rebellion and unbelief. Listen, it doesn't matter what the nominal church says. God does not tolerate evil. He has no tolerance for evil at all. You cannot read the Bible and come away with anything more than sins will be punished severely. Beloved, this is not backsliding. This is stubborn, persistent rebellion, listen, that in time reveals. This is not a faithful saint stumbling. Another message. This is not a faithful saint stumbling. They remain. They're on the tree. This is false faith exposed and cut off. And the warning here by Paul is one that is very familiar. Speaking of reading our Bible, you see this all over the New Testament. All over the place. Let me just give you a brief sample. We could spend the rest of our time looking at these passages. John 8, 31, note it. If you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly what? My disciples. That's right. From Paul, listen to Colossians 1. This is 22 and 23. Listen to what he says. He's reconciled us now. Reconciled us now. In this his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless 
and above reproach before him. And then listen to this in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is being proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You know this, of course, from John. 1 John 1, 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not what? Of us. For if they had been of us, even though they looked like us, acted like us, if they had been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. But they went out, and note this, let's not miss this, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Do you see that? This is the doctrine in view. This is the perseverance of the saints. And it's simply this. The remaining of the saints reveals the faith of the saint. You see that? The remainingness. The remaining reveals their true faith. That's what the word teaches over and over. And that's the word, by the way, look at Romans 11, that Paul is using in this section for continue in. You see it a couple times there? That word means to persist in, to stay on, to abide in. It's a familiar New Testament word of exhortation. And the exhortation here by Paul is the same one you see to other Gentiles. I want you to think with me of the seven Gentile churches in the book of Revelation. They have warnings with threats of what? Removal. But those warnings to believers are always balanced with this, says Jesus. Not just promises of overcoming, but listen to John 6. In fact, turn there so that we can see this rightly balanced. We need to understand perseverance rightly. Jesus says this, in light of all of these warnings to stay and abide, here is the great reality from Jesus himself. And in context of John 6, if we were to go to John 6.66, we'd see that many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him because of what Jesus was saying. So the words of Jesus exposed. They followed the works of Jesus, but they had no time for the words of Jesus. And is that not still true today? Many people, many people give ample time to the works of Jesus, but really give lip service to his words. But here in John 6, let's listen from our Savior directly. This, John 6, will begin in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the effectual call of God. And whoever comes to me, I will never what? Cast out. It's permanence. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. So what is God's will for the timeline of our salvation of the permanence or the temporalness of our salvation. What is it? This is the will of whom was sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So here's a guarantee on that day that you were saved. Nothing can take you away from resurrection. Do you believe that? On the day of your salvation, there's absolutely nothing, listen to me, including you, that can remove you from the guarantee of resurrection. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. This is God's will, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes of Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Yes, beloved, once saved, always saved, says Jesus. Whomever is called and comes to Jesus, says Jesus, I will never cast off. Salvation is not a switch to be turned off and on according to our faith. Listen to me, praise God for that. Right? We all know where we'd be if we could lose our salvation. Salvation is a gift. Let's preview verse 29 now in Romans 11. In fact, what's the language? With every gift, what does Romans 11:29 say? For the gifts and the calling of God can be given and taken away depending on the condition of the... Is that what it says? What does it say? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Praise the Lord. So just because, and here it is to help us think through this, the, the, the so-called tension in these passages, where it seems like you can lose something, just because Gentile, you, in that Roman church, in the community of faith there in Rome, first century, it does not mean you're holding fast by faith. Just because you're there and you're hearing this letter read, listen, 
Here's our lesson. Proximity is not security. Proximity is not security. In the same way for the Jew, just because they were in the covenant community of Israel, it was no security for their soul eternally. Oh, they thought so. And how time revealed that. Listen, this is Paul's point that we'll see. Follow with me. Let's dial in. In the same way corporate Israel was winnowed and revealed to be only a remnant that had true faith, the true Israel, in the same way the Gentiles will be winnowed, some branches cut off, because time will reveal they never had true faith, the sap of security at all. Because true for Israel, true for Gentiles, proximity is not security. Just showing up to church, just being with Christians is not eternal security. Listen, it's temporal comfort when you make it the terminus. At least I was at church. At least I did godly things. Those things do not save. Your physical walking and place on a Sunday morning does not save you. Beloved market, please, these things are eternally important. The Lord's judgment is coming on a largely Gentile apostate church. It's coming. And in fact, many of us that are paying attention are seeing it already, are we not? Those in church communities that will be gathered on that day, God forbid, we're in this group, and they say, Lord, Lord, look at the things I've done. And what does God say? That's right. Now it's true that day has not arrived yet. And now there's the tension. It has not arrived yet. We don't know the tree in completion. Praise God. It's not arrived yet. That day has not arrived yet. That day of revealing. So Paul continues, verse 23, look with me. And even they, glorious, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Majestic. See how Paul shows the opposite is true in Israel. He simply says, verse 23, this is what he's saying. If a currently unbelieving Jew does not persist in his unbelief, he will be what? Grafted back in. That's what the text says. God has the power to do that. Anything he chooses to do, in fact. And time reveals for this repentant Jew, it may have looked like he was cut off, but he wasn't. Just like for the proud Gentile on the other side, may look grafted in, but time reveals what? He truly wasn't. Church, if it is true for us where persistence reveals our true faith, how much more for Israel? Where repentance is never too late for a return. Grab that lesson. Repentance, never too late for a return. In fact, the Jews' return to Jesus is much more natural. Look at verse 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Gentiles, let us be warned and stirred up of a reminder of the plan of God here. Israel, God's chosen people, stumbled, branches cut off, and so a wild olive shoot. Gentiles were grafted in. And that grafting was for the purpose of making Israel, the natural branches, jealous. So that this olive tree of life only persists with branches of the faithful. Whether natural or grafted in or regrafted, however we say it, all the branches on the tree in the end are faithful and repentant. That's the picture of the plan of God, life from the dead. Finally here, we end with this. We've looked at the plan, the picture, now the patience. The patience. We've seen in so many studies at Westmount that we are an impatient people. I was talking to the class about this upstairs. We are an impatient people, are we not? Holiday seasons are just one thing that bring out that impatience, right? That show it. But in the plan of God here, we must note that God is not us, or more aptly, we are not God. And we must note God's patience. Look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Note the timing here. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Again, the warning in light of short-sightedness. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. 
This mystery, and we've covered this in previous studies too, in other New Testament places, reveals that God's plan included the Gentiles. And I would suggest to you what the New Testament reveals is to a fullness and a point that the Jew didn't consider. Ruth and Rahab is one thing, but a a whole age of Gentiles coming in was not under consideration. Listen again to Colossians 1. It says, As to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This, of course, is in a context where he talks about being the apostle to the Gentiles. But here, part of the plan is Christ in you to the Gentiles, Messiah to the Gentiles. Here in Romans 11, we see an aspect of the mystery that reveals the manner and the purpose of Gentile inclusion. So we fill out the picture. And here it is most succinctly. Israel is partially hardened. Do you see that in verse 25? The nation partially hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Then, once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel, that's fullness, will be saved. Nothing new here. This is the plan of God. Again, unfolded in all its steps. The full number of the Gentiles, we said this last week, refers to the full number of the elect from among the Gentiles called by God. We looked at that also in chapter 9, verse 24. Nothing new. That full number will be made up as the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world in this age and up to Christ's second coming. And once the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in, see it, verse 25, the fullness of Israel will be brought in too. The full number of elect Israelites, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, all. As such, the fullness of both groups standing side by side, branches together, olive tree in full bloom. The fullness of both groups that makes up all of God's people. That's so important to grab. The fullness, right, of these people, now making up all. And says Paul, this is just as it was written. Look at verse 26. He continues, And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's taken, if you look at it, maybe it's familiar, from Isaiah 59, verse 20. The first part is. And then the second part, just the last few words there, Isaiah 27, 9. So Paul, again, as we've seen him do time and time again in this passage, goes to the Old Testament. And here, as he's done most often, goes to the book of Isaiah. And both passages that he references are pointing to Israel's end. The plan for Israel, what's to come on that day. And here's what's most instructive for us. Turn, in fact, to one of those, Isaiah 27. This is what's most instructive for us. And see where the context that Paul is going to. We're going to begin in verse 1. Remember, Isaiah, so many of these passages, always weaving between judgment and comfort. Judgment and restoration. That's that's the theme in Isaiah. Right? You can almost break the book up in two halves like that. But within each, you see this. Judgment, but restoration. Judgment, restoration. Chapter 27, let's begin reading in verse 1. It says this, In that day, there it is, future, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, note it, sing of it, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and bristles to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. And then this. Look at verse 6. In days to come. There it is again. Future. Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots. And fill the whole world with fruit. You see the language there very clearly of the tree. And then this, let's turn to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, let's just put these together. Isaiah 59, and basically we're going to begin in verse 14. Again, another judgment and redemption passage. 
This is what we see, verse 14. Let's just read. Pick it up. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth is stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. So much we could say about that, how that applies to today, isn't it? Just kind of as we look at that afresh. But then let's continue in verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Here's the justice of God. Wrath to his adversaries, repaying repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And then the direct, the main direct quote Paul goes to, verse 20, and a redeemer. Talk about the redemption the hope, a redeemer will come to Zion, the epicenter of Israel, right there, Jerusalem, the epicenter here, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And then verse 21, let's not miss this. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring. Note that says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Listen, the covenant in view there, of course, is the new covenant fulfillment. The covenant promise, map it to Isaiah 27, and the prophets to take away sin. The judgment on that sin, yet the restoration and the hope can only be because this sin has been atoned for. This is what Yahweh is saying. So good. The covenant that Gentiles have experienced in preview with forgiveness, Israel, is this. And the covenant that one day Israel, in its fullness, Romans 11, will experience with its cosmic effects. That's the point. As we turn back to Romans 11, and I hope we see that. That's the point. This is the plan of God. Gentile inclusion, Israel's restoration, worldwide fruit. And God's plan is summed up in the last few verses here. Look at verse 28. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Again, addressing the Gentiles, Paul says, verse 28, with respect to the gospel, they, the nation of Israel, the Israelites, are enemies to God for your Gentile's sake. In other words, what's Paul saying? Israelites' hostility to Yahweh and Messiah is actually your gain, and we've seen that. Because they're hostile to Messiah, Gentiles, you've gained. But he goes on to say, with respect to election, Israel is beloved for you and the faithful. In other words, what a plan. In enmity, God called a people, not his people, you Gentiles. Yet in covenant fidelity, God will not forsake his people, called his people Israel. It's an amazing plan, isn't it? That's God. And it's guaranteed, by the way, with this, verse 29, and now we return to it. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Included, I would submit to you, is the justice of God. It doesn't revoke his justice to say, well, I know a temporary stumbling. No, I will be just. I must send a redeemer to redeem them. But my promises are true. Incredible plan. The gift of salvation is included here in verse 29. And then one final sweeping vista of this glorious plan of God. Look at verse 30. It's amazing. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Wow. If we can follow that, let's just slow it down for a moment to make sure we're tracking here. See the plan and the progression. Zero in on these verses. In sum, Paul says this, out of Gentile disobedience, all nations are wicked and rebellions, right? Genesis 6, Genesis 11. Out of that, God called a people through a person, Abraham. God called Israel, Genesis 12. And out of that nation, Israel's disobedience, which you see in Exodus to Malachi, after cutting off dead branches, God called and grafted in, Acts in the New Testament, Gentiles. Do you see that? And out of Gentile mercy and obedience, we will soon see God brings it full circle. 
It's just majestic, isn't it? To ultimately and finally show mercy to the fullness of Israel, as the prophets foretold and Revelation shows us. So here it is simply, verses 30 and 31. The disobedience of each group, Jew and Gentile, led to the mercy for each group, Jew and Gentile. That's it. The disobedience of each group led to the mercy for each group. Just an astounding plan, is it not? This cosmic plan for redemption. And then the capstone statement of the plan of God. See it in verse 32. This is it. You could sum up Paul's argument really in this section thus far to this. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Let's read that verse rightly, shall we? Again, class that was upstairs, we talked about this. Reading that quickly or with assumptions, we will get this wrong. And you know what all means, right? All means all, but all always has a context, doesn't it? It always does. We, we speak like this all the time. So that's three things as we close and understand the Bible rightly. Number one, all in one verse must be the same group in the first part as the second. Would you agree? He has to be talking about the same group. All in one, all in the other. He's not changing the terms on us mid-sentence, right? And if that is true, if you track with me and agree, secondly, all cannot mean all human beings, can it? Why? As we learned class upstairs, all human beings will not be saved, says Jesus in the Gospels, says Revelation 20. So all is the same, but all is not every single human being that ever lived. Thirdly, then, all must mean all groups in context on the tree of faith, and this makes perfect sense with our study. What are the two groups? The Jew, faithful Jews, the faithful Gentiles. All, not just you Jews, all nations, a group from all nations. The Jew first, Romans 1, and also the Greek. This makes sense. Those groups, the ones on the tree, that is the patience that God would consign even faithful Israel and faithful Gentile, you and me, consign us to disobedience for a time under Adam. And we were consigned to that. But when the new Adam came, Jesus Christ, it was revealed that for that group of faithful Israel and that group, the faithful Gentiles, mercy would be shown on them for all of them in those groups. That's the point. That's the patience of God. That God would have, and we would say it this way, representatively mercy on all of mankind. Think about how audacious this would be for the Jew. Are you kidding me? He's going to liberate people from all over the world and... Paul would say yes to the glory of God. He would do that. A group from the Jews, a group from the Gentiles, people from all nations, thus mercy on the whole tree, on all. Now we cannot leave this portion on the olive tree, this tree of faith and life, without one last connection from this letter. And if we miss this, we miss the whole thing. And it's really God's word in sum. God help us to see this. We mentioned off the top that plan of God and execution begins in Abraham. That's only partially true. The plan was revealed long before Abraham, wasn't it? So let's turn to Genesis 3 to close. Long before Abraham, that plan was revealed. Genesis 3, of course, the context, you know it, is humanity's stumble. Not just Israel's stumble, this is Adam's stumble. And in that original sin that threw the rest of humanity into death, we have this curse. Verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Her offspring, as I'm sure you know, in the original, the word there is seed. The seed planted in stumble The plan of God from eternity past revealed right here that God would give a seed that would bring life from the dead. It is true, this seed would produce a root. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the Old Testament shows us. And that root would produce faithful branches. Joseph, Moses, David. And in time, following the example of those Old Testament saints, other faithful shoots with spiritual DNA in the woman's seed, in the new Adam, 
Only those are grafted into the tree. In Rome, in Corinth, Ephesus, Philadelphia, and Westmount Bible Chapel. All shoots of a branch of a root growing from a seed. One seed. One seed. The seed. There is no tree without the seed. There is no tree. And Christian, that seed, our seed, is Jesus Christ. The son of the woman, the son of man, the son of God. And every shoot and branch and root of the tree is found in him and him alone. And only in him can the cosmos, the Gentile, the Jew, and you and me, all of us, respond rightly the way we were designed and ought to as God's creation. There is no other way. There is no other seed. Just one. May God help us to continue in him to be revealed, to be his on that day. Let's pray. Father, may indeed that be true of us. Lord, we think of the seed your son sent for the repentant sinner who would turn from his ways and place faith and trust in you. And I pray if there's anyone here in this place, not on the tree, still in Adam, Lord, that you would show these truths to them. Reveal these truths to them and show them, Lord, where their heart must be turned. But Father, help us to this end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.